This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I travel, as many of you know, around the world, going to various different conferences, and I get to listen to a lot of speakers uh, when I travel. And about five years ago, I was attending a Society for Integrative Oncology conference in Houston, and the keynote speaker is going to be our next speaker, um, Sonia Lupin, and I heard her talk, and it so resonated with me as a cancer patient that I knew one day it would happen that uh, she would be able and be available to come to this conference and address us and address our live audience. And that day is today, and I'd like to introduce Sonia. She is the director of the Center for Studies on Human Stress, and its mission is to um, transfer scientifically validated knowledge on stress to the general public. She holds a Canada's Research Chair on Human Stress and is a full professor at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Montreal. She's been a researcher, a scientific researcher, for over 25 years. She studies the effects of stress on the human brain from infancy to old age. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Sonia Lupin. Good morning, everyone. So it's a pleasure to be here, going from my very cold and windy Montreal, so the little French accent that you hear in the back. I'm from Montreal, Canada. So, but as I always say, you're lucky because I speak much faster in French, so this is good. <laughs> so what I want to do today, this is a talk I really like to give. So I just want to show you, uh, teach you a bit what the stress scientists have sh learned for the last 35 years. You know, human stress research is not an old science. I mean, we started to be able to stress humans around 1960s before we were stressing rats. It was fun, but not that useful. And uh, we were able to stress humans around the 1960s. So it's a quite a young research area. And I just want to come here and summarize a bit to you what we have learned so far and try to apply this to the field of oncology. So, you know, I really walk my dog and say, okay, what is it that I learned that can have implication for the journey uh, that you have today? So let's start right away with the famous definition of stress. I know that it makes it, you know, very academic to start asking ourselves, well, what is stress? But it's a very, very important question. Why? Because after 25 years of research on the effects of stress on the brain, I think that I finally know why we are so stressed out today. And the answer is very simple. I think we may be making a mistake. And here's the mistake. I think we think we know what stress is, and I think we're making a mistake. Think about it two seconds. If you don't have the right definition of stress, we agree that it's going to be quite difficult to deal with the thing. Hmm? So very early in my career, I asked myself, what is stress for the public? Are we talking about the same thing or not? So I went out there and I did a survey with 1,500 people from 18 to 89 years of age, and I asked two questions. The first one, do you know what stress is? Everyone says yes. It's fine. Second question, what is it? If you know what it is, what is it? And when I do this, 97% of people will say time pressure, 
We feel stress when we don't have the time to do everything that we would like to do in the allocated period of time. And this is why in the job you have today or in the job you had in the past, if you have a consultant expert on stress that comes to your office and use the definition of stress as being time pressure, he's going to solve your problem in two seconds. Yeah. He's going to say, well, since stress is time pressure, we will manage time, the famous time management. And then you will end up with a very organized agenda with post-it every colors everywhere. And after two weeks, you're going to stop this because it's too stressful. <laughs> true, huh? It's true. So the first myth that I want to destroy right away today, and I'm going to say it twice because I really want you to encode it. Here it is. Stress is not underlying time pressure. I repeat, stress is not time pressure. If it was... How can you explain that you're very stressed out when you're going to the dentist? It's not the technician who's going to throw you on the chair. Or when you learn that, you know, your spouse, for example, has, has a disorder. There's no time pressure, and yet you're suffering. So very early in my career, I realized two things. The first, we need to talk. And the second, me and my career, I could never just use stress questionnaires. We were talking about that yesterday. To, to assess stress in human beings, we don't have the same definition. I needed a measure that would never lie, that even if you're telling me that you're very zen, but that you're stressed out, I will know it. And this measure, we had it in the biological response to stress. Now, don't be scared. I'm going to give you your class 101 on biological stress in humans. It's not going to hurt going to go fast. And with this beautiful knowledge, I'll show you how we can de-stress using exactly what nature has given us. And I will explain, I guess, some of your hobbies on the weekend and why you have to keep doing them. So here it is. This is how it works, a stress response. It's a beautiful stress response. The stress response is beautiful. I'm the only person in this world who loves stress. And I think it's very bad. Why? Because I've learned something else. When you know exactly how the beast works, it's quite easy to fight it. But I think that we're suffering so much from stress because we don't know against what we're fighting. So we're kind of, you know, trying to give some, you know, things to the, to the, to the beast and we have no idea what we're doing. So here it is. This is how it works. The first thing you have to understand when we're talking about stress is the following. Your brain, and I'll show you that this is where it starts and this is, this is where it ends. Your brain is a detector of threatening information. And I'll come back to this in oncology. Hmm. So this is the job of your brain. Your brain was not created to fill out form 111 on the corner of the disk. It will do so until there's a threat in the environment. The moment there's a threat in the environment, never will your brain allow you to finish to fill up your form 111. All your attention will go on the threat in order to allow you to do the only two things you want to do if you want to survive, you fight or you get away if it's too big. This you learned in college. Mia will continue the story. So here is how it works. Each time your brain detects a threat that we call a stress, so stress equals threat, it will produce hormones, the name is not important, that will go and activate the adrenal glands, you know, that are located on top of your kidneys. And once they get the message, the, the adrenal glands, boom, they will produce stress hormones, the name is not important, that will allow you to do the only two things you want to do if you want to survive, you fight or you get away. This is the, the continuation of the story. In both cases, whether you decide to fight or do, to get away, you need only one thing, energy. 
And it is these stress hormones that gave you the energy in prehistorical time to either kill the mammoth, eat it, and survive, or get away if it was too big, and here we are, surviving to the mammoth. Believe me, you will never see mammoth the same way after this talk. Hmm? And each time people talk to me, they're asking me, is it on purpose that you make this association between stress and mammoth? Yes, it is. Why? Because I want you to remember that if you're here today, it's because first, your ancestors, when they saw a mammoth, they detected the threat. They didn't try to make friends with the thing. No? And second, they were so scared. They mobilized so much energy because of this stress response that they had the energy needed to kill the beast. It's big, a mammoth. Eat it and survive or get away if it was too big, and here we are surviving to the mammoth. So, never let anyone tell you that stress is negative. False. Each time, each time, the stress response is acute, here and now. It is necessary for survival, each time. Okay? Even today, you know sometimes people tell me, Sonia, there's no more mammoth. I know. Hmm? But I give the story, for example, of my son one day, you know, in the parking. He says, Mom, I want to play hockey, Canada. I want to play hockey on the parking lot with a ball. And I said, no problem, my son. But if the ball goes in the street, you don't follow the ball. He's only eight years old, so for sure the ball goes in the street. Son goes, Hum. I see a car coming. I don't even have the time to say anything to him. My brain says he's going to get hurt. If the brain of this child did not detect movement in the periphery, allowing him to produce a stress response, bah, that stopped him right there, he was dead. This is a stress response. So each time the stress response is acute, it is necessary for survival. So what I am measuring, it's, I'm never asking you if you're stressed out, although I do because you want to talk to me about it, but what I'm measuring is these stress hormones. How do I measure them? Well, at the beginning of my career, I was a bit in trouble because I needed to measure this in a blood sample. It didn't work. Because suffice it that I came with a syringe and everyone was stressing and I did not even start. It's true, it was very complicated. So in the 1990s, the German colleagues found ways to measure this in saliva. I mean, I only need you to spit. Put this in your freezer because it doesn't smell good after a while. And I unfreeze it and I measure your stress hormones. More recently, the German colleagues found ways to measure this in hair. This is interesting. Why? Because the stress hormones accumulate in your hair. It doesn't get away when you wash your hair or when you dye your hair. Now, you have to know that your hair is growing one centimeter per month. If you take three centimeters from the hair from the root, you have three months of stress. It's the best measure of chronic stress you could never find. And each time I'm talking about this, I can see in the room, you know, men without hair saying, hmm, you do what with me? <laughs> And I always answer, my assistant, Robert, can take any other hair. And it's true. Okay. So the body produces that, we pick up and we measure, and everything I will tell you is based on that. This is what we do in my lab. So we have measured this for many years. The story was interesting, but not that much. But in the 1970s or 80s, scientists found a second thing that started to be very interesting for me. It's the following. The same stress hormones you're producing in order to have enough energy to kill your mammoth or get away if it's too big, within a period of eight to 10 minutes, that's fast. These stress hormones go back to the brain. We never thought they would go back to the brain, but they do. And when they go back to the brain, they have an interesting preference for the brain regions involved in learning and memory and in emotional regulation. That's going to become important. What is emotional regulation? When I talk to people, I realize that it's not everyone knowing what it is. So I'll give you an example of what is emotional regulation. 
can I talk to you as if we knew each other? And indeed we do because we had dinner yesterday. Okay. So it's, it's what I'm going to tell her. I just want to use you. You don't have anything to say. I just want to talk to you as if you were my friend. And I'm, what I'm going to tell her is not true. So you can give her social support at the end, but it's not true what I'm going to tell her. It's just a, an example I want to give. So what is emo emotional regulation? Here is what it is. Let's say that you're upset with your friend Sarah. Well, it would be good that this is over in six months. Hmm? And we all know someone who has been upset with something or someone else for 10 years. Hmm? They are totally unable to regulate their emotion. They are totally unable to let go. But the thing you don't understand, and when, it's when you are home on a Saturday morning ruminating on Sarah, and Sarah, by the way, is skiing with her two children. She's very happy, okay? So when you're home ruminating on Sarah on a Saturday morning, you're sending to your brain the message that it's a big mammoth and you're producing enough stress hormones to kill you alone in your living room. And this is the thing important to understand. Nelson Mandela said when he got out of prison after 20 or 28 years of prison, the following sentence. He said, resentment is a poison that you drink, hoping it's your worst enemy that took it but still it's you who took it. So the day you understand this, because it's the brain producing this response, never forget this. So the day you understand this, you learn something. You learn that each time, God, did I say this to my children? Each time you're upset with someone or something else, the only person who suffers is you. So the day you understand this, you say, well, my return on investment is not that high, so I'm going to start regulating my, hormone, my, my emotions. The thing is that these stress hormones, when they go back to the brain, they prevent you from being able to, regulate, to, to deal with, uh, regulate your emotion. So it's Saturday night, you're still ruminating on Sarah, you cannot sleep, oh, it's even worse. Okay? So when we saw that, it became very interesting. And we said, why is it that these stress hormones would go back to the brain? It doesn't make sense. And impaired learning and memory doesn't make sense. And we searched for this. And we learned that even this, when it goes back to the brain, it's necessary for survival. Why? We got the answer to this when we thought about Bambi. You know Bambi, Walt Disney? Then the stress science, we have the Bambi example to understand why these stress hormones going back to the brain is still good for your survival. Here is the example. Let's say you're Bambi. And you decide to go take a walk in the wood this morning. And you come face to face with a bear. There are two things you need to do if you want to survive. First, you need to mobilize enough energy to get away from there as fast as you can. And the second thing you need is to remember never to go back there because there's a bear. And it is these stress hormones going back to your brain telling you never forget this if you want to survive. And this is how we survive. If I was asking you to tell me what you were doing and with whom you were on February 16, 2006, you could not do this. Now, if I was asking you to tell me what you were doing, with whom you were, what were you wearing, what time was it when you learned of the event of September, September 11, 2001, you could. Now, 2001 is five years before 2006, so way further in your memory still, everyone remembers. Why? Because on September 11, 2001, every one of us here, we detected the threatening information. And remember, you're watching the TV, your heart is beating fast, it's called a stress response. You're producing stress hormones going back to your brain telling you, never forget this. And this is what will make us not forget. 
It's the worst nightmares of trauma victim. Why? Because they cannot forget. So just to tell you what we do seriously in my lab, I have two PhD students who are going to work on these stress hormones to neutralize, I didn't say erase, neutralize traumatic memory so that you can deal with life much better. We're not there yet. It's called therapeutic forgetting if you're interested in that. But one day we will. So all this long introduction to convince you forever that each time the stress response is acute, it is necessary for survival. The only problem with stress, and there's only one, it's when this same stress response, exactly the same thing I just told you, becomes chronic because you have too many mammoths in your life. Now, never forget, each time there's a mammoth, you're producing stress hormones, they go back to your brain. They go back to your brain. They go back to your brain. What happens is, is that by going to your brain day after day after day, many times per day, these stress hormones will slowly but surely modify the way you will interpret the next situation so that in the long term, the, the, the glass will be half empty instead of half full. And this is how stuff like anxiety, burnout, and depression will develop. We know the way by which chronic stress gets into the brain and makes you sick like this. So see how much it's important to stop the stress response before it goes back up. Okay? It's easier said than done. Why? Because there are two types of stressor. Absolute stressors and relative stressor. What are these? An absolute stressor is a real threat for survival. Someone comes in here and says, fire! We're not going to start talking. and eh? We're going to start running, getting out of here as fast as we can. We have a problem, a scientific problem. Why? Because I don't know if you realized, but there's no more mammoth these days, right? Second, we're not in Iraq. We're not in Syria. We are in a very rich, educated society, yet the World Health Organization predicts that by the year 2020, depression related to chronic stress will be the second cause of invalidity in the world after cardiovascular diseases that are related to stress. Hey, there's no more mammoth. In the entire history of the world, we've never been so much in security, and yet so many people suffer from stress. And God, did we search for this one. And we, we realize that if we are suffering so much today, it's because the brain is a bit stupid. Doesn't know we're in 2019. It doesn't make the difference between an absolute stressor and a relative stressor. One day it will. In about 400 years, there will be no more burnout, I'm sure. But until then, the brain has to deal with that. So what is cancer P patient? you are exposed to absolute stressor because this is a threat to your survival. So you are different from the rest of the population on this issue. You are facing an absolute stress. There's not a lot you can do on absolute stressor, but relative stressor. You can work on that, and this is what I'm going to talk to you about. But before I give you what is a relative stressor, I want to share a personal story with you. Everyone who knows me knows that what I would love the most in life would be to take a human being Bring, it in my, bring him or her in my lab and expose this person to an absolute stressor. You have no idea how many ideas I have for this. <laughs> now, I could never do this and I will never be able to do this because the ethic committees of my university <laughs> don't let me do this. And why would I like to do this? Because do you have an idea of everything I could learn if I could do this? And the second thing I would like to do is to film the people that I'm exposing to an absolute stressor so I can show you the video and then uh, sitting there, you could ask yourself, do I look like this? And if the answer is yes, you know you have to quit your job or you know, do something. But I cannot do this and I will never be. But recently I made a new friend and it's Google. And on Google, I realized that the Brazilian people 
don't have ethics committees. Why? Because in Brazil, there's a very popular show. It cannot they cannot exist in Canada, at least I'm sure. But over there, they can do this. And the, the main goal of this show is very simple, is to expose people to very threatening and forbid things without telling them so they don't sign an informed consent or anything. And people think it's funny. I love the Brazilians. Why? Because they're giving me food for absolute stress. I have all their video. I'm their number one fan. And I'm analyzing this. And because of my new Brazilian friend, I can show you today what is an absolute stressor. So sitting here, you can ask yourself, do I look like this? So I'm going to show you a short video of about uh, 50 seconds. What you will see, it's the, the easiest of their video. They are worse thing than that. So you have two ladies who are going to go shop. They are in an elevator. They have no idea what's going to happen to, this, to them. They did not sign an informed consent form. And then the elevator will stop. Mammoth number one. The lights will go off. Mammoth number two. And while the lights are off and the ladies don't see anything, a little door will open. And out of this door will come out a young girl disguised as the exorcist or something like that. And then the lights will go on. Now, when the lights go on, I want you to look at the face of the ladies. This is an absolute stressor. You're fine? We'll come back to this. So what you see here, it's called a freeze response. The lady froze in front of the stressor. Now, many people who know about stress come to see me sometime and say, Sonia, why don't you ever talk about the freeze response as the third stress response? Because it's not a stress response, it's a trauma response. Think about it. If we had frozen in front of the mammoth, they would have eaten all us, all up, everyone here. So when you have someone who has a freeze response, it's because you are at the very tiny frontier between stress and trauma. So... You did not look like this when you learned about the, the cancer, but I will come back to that, okay? Today we are surrounded by relative stressor. It took us 28 years to find this, but scientists found that there are four characteristics of a situation that will induce the stress response, exactly what I showed you. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your age, whatever your job. I challenge you to find a situation in your life that you find stressful that you cannot explain by at least one of these characteristics, you won't be able. What you have to understand is that the situation doesn't have to have all four characteristics to induce a stress response. The more you have, the worse it is. And if there is only one thing that you want to remember from this conference, this is it. And I'll give you an acronym to help you. So, in order for a situation to induce a stress response, it has to be novel. It has to be unpredicted or unpredictable. It must be threatening to your ego. Someone, you know, questioning your capacity to do your job at the coffee machine on a Tuesday morning in front of colleagues. A little feeling you have. It's called a stress response. And most importantly, most importantly, you must have the feeling, feeling is important, that you don't have control over the situation. I can ensure you that when you are exposed to one or more of these four characteristics, bang, you will produce a stress response. I have the greatest job in the world. I'm paid to stress people every day. That's what I'm doing. Okay? In order for you to remember this, remember, stress don't go nuts. Novelty, unpredictability, threat to your ego and sense of low control. Many, many times people will tell me, Sonia, I understand your thing. Hmm? Oh, and by the way, this is my little gift for you. Your brain doesn't know how old you are. No, your brain doesn't care. 
So all of this applies as well to your children and applies as well to your parents. When people talk to me about the stress of children, I have no idea what they're talking about. The brain of the children is the same. The origin of novelty and predictability is different, but this is it anyway. So sometimes people will tell me, Sonia, okay, fine, but I have problems figuring what it means, you know, the nuts characteristic to stress. And more so, you say that when we're stressed out, we mobilize energy. And I will add to this information that when you mobilize energy, it has to go somewhere. So I went to go see my good friend Google again, and I found another short video of 50 seconds that will show you what is a relative stressor. So what you will see is two men working in a small open space, which is dangerous for your threatening your ego. And one will think it's too warm in the room, and the other one will think it's not warm enough. So one will increase the heat, and the other one will decrease the heat. the time you're telling me, well, okay, Sonia, I understand, but I'm not going to jump on my colleague. I, I believe you. I believe you, but, but, but you had a very stressful day and you come back home and you find yourself shouting with the children at the table and in the back of your head, you're saying, this is not what I want to do still. This is why you do. This is what you do. You know why? Remember this as well. Why? Because each time, each time you have a stress response, you're mobilizing energy. If you don't lose the mobilized energy, it will always, always, always come back as spontaneous anger. You know when you have spontaneous anger and mm, you start being very angry? This is nothing else than a sign that your brain is sending you, yet sending you, there's a mammoth, there's a mammoth. But we don't see this as a sign and we keep going. I've been using this sign for many years. And when I find myself in anger with my son, for example, I said, my God, he did not deserve this one. There's a mammoth over there. I have to find it and chase it because I have to decrease this stressor. This is a sign that your brain's sending you. Now, for many, many years, I've studied the effects of stress on the brain and on learning and memory. Let me show you in two slides what I found. And what I want to do is to take my science of stress to apply it to oncology. So what I have found, if I bring people, whatever their age, to the lab, and I stress them. No, I measure their memory first. Hmm? and I stress them, and I see what happens to their memory, I will see that there is a significant decrease in neutral memory, memory of unimportant things, but there will be a significant increase in emotional memory. Okay? So they will remember my face, believe me. Okay? So there are two characteristics of emotional memory induced by, by stress. There's a difference between remembering the central versus the peripheral detail. When you stress someone, they will remember exactly what is the stressful thing. So if it's you, I will remember you. 
but I'm not seeing anything around. I don't see you over there. I'm not encoding you. I'm not even encoding you. It's only you. We call this the weapon-focused phenomenon. You know, you have victims who had a weapon in their face. They can give the serial number to the police, but they never saw the face of the guy. It's a focus on central details. The second characteristics, the immediate recall is very low. They don't remember anything, but two weeks later, remember this, it's two weeks. Science have shown it's not 10 days, it's not 11, it's 14. We don't know why yet. There is a comeback of the emotional memory. Okay? This has a lot of implication for oncology. And we were discussing this at dinner table yesterday because I've kept saying to my colleagues who work with cancer patients, when you announce the diagnosis, I, I can bet anything I own that if you give them information after the diagnosis, well, you're going to have to come tomorrow and they are not encoding a thing. It's absolutely certain. They're not encoding a thing. And if they still be chronic in the long term, compliance will go down. They're not encoding what you're saying. So if you want to remember, you have to bring someone with you. And we were talking about this yesterday. You know, tape something. Because your brain, this is not what they are going to do. The brain is just whew, focusing on exactly the threatening information, which is at this point the diagnosis. And I'm trying to work with the oncologists to try to perhaps change the way we do this so that we're sure that we play with the brain the way it works when it receives this information. Now, I want to go fast on this one, but I was walking my dog and I said, okay, what is it that I've learned that has implication for this, this conference? There are many factors that can increase the stress hormones. I measured many things in my life, but four interesting factors for oncology that you can play on because I want to give you tools that sitting in your you know, living room with, with a stressful period because you have a scan coming up or something, you say, okay, let's play this one. Let's use this. Okay? The first thing that can increase your stress level is the test that you are having. The second thing, news and medias. Have you ever looked at the title of newspapers? Self-help books and time perspective. So let's play. Let's look at this, the testing environment. For many years, scientists have shown that older people have less memory than young people, and they say this is age-related memory impairment. So one day, I did my PhD on stress in older people. I said, oh, yeah, this is true. They don't have memory. When you look at the way we test older and younger people, it might be just induced by the stress of our testing environment. You bring your older people to the university. You say you have to go in this office in the university. The old people have no idea where it is, and the young university students know exactly. So it's novel for the, or the senior people and not novel for the young people. They are going to be tested on their possibly declining memory by a young research assistant of 23 years of age. This is threatening for a 72-year-old, not threatening for someone your same age. So I looked at all, and I have many, many of this. I really looked at the environment where we test people, and I said, what you're doing, scientists and clinicians, without even noticing it, is that you're putting these people in stressful environment, you're producing a stress response, gets to the brain, decreased memory, and you say, ha, you have a mild cognitive impairment. And I'm going to show this to you. So what I have done, I took a group of older people, and a group of young people, and I've tested their memory in favorable environment for them, young or old, or unfavorable environment for them. You don't test a 72-year-old person at 1 p.m. It's nap time. They've been up since 5, and the young just woke up. See what I mean? So I've done this, and I don't have the time to go to all this. And what I show, these are the same people. When you test older people in unfavorable environment, you increase stress response, decrease memory. When you test them in favorable environment, no difference with the young. 
So what I want to tell you is that the, the, the environment in which we are putting people can induce a stress response, and this we have to take care of this. If you are a clinician, based on the results, we have created this guideline that is called when we test, do we stress, where we tell people what people find stressful in the medical care environment so that clinicians who, who want to work with this can at least try to decrease the, 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 the stress of the environment. Ah, news and media. As every day you open the TV, you see pictures like this, you read the newspapers, etc. And one day, I always wake up before my children when they were young to read my newspaper alone. Hmm? Zen. And uh, in, in Quebec, there was a young girl who had been abducted. And we, they, everyone was looking for her. She was the same age as my daughter. So one day, I'm reading my newspaper, and uh, uh, she's there, you know, at the front page. And it's written, you know, are we going to find her killed, murder, rape? And while I'm reading this, I'm like... Phew. I feel a stress response, and I said, well, 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 the brain is a detector of threatening information. Could it be possible that when I read this, the brain detects a threat, I produce stress hormones? So I came back to the lab, and we did the study. Hmm? So what we did, oh, and by the way, when I was thinking about this, I said, ah, is it true that the newspaper, you know, information is always negative? I was in New York for a meeting, so I was at the airport. I said, I'm going to buy three newspapers randomly and look at just the title. Look at that. And I'm not joking, this is random. Predicting a slowdown in revenue. You always have a negative word. Liberians reveals war scars. Two young men die in India, crash. Interactive features, faces of death. Even in the health section, it's negative. I can believe, I, if anyone here knows the newspaper title, I do. So we did the study. And we exposed two groups. One group read real negative news, and one group read real neutral news. You have no idea how long it took us to find non-negative news. <laughs> I'm not joking. The, the student came in my office, you know, and they're almost crying. Like, I said, what's up? There's no, there's no, I, you know, I'm like in the depth uh, where people die. Uh, this is the only positive thing I can find. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we were able to get neutral news. So people, they just read the news. That's all we asked them. Read the news. And then we stress them to see how they would react. And then we let them go home, for, and 24 hours late, 48 hours later, we called them to try to see what they remember about the news. We did this in men and women. And what we found, men, no effect. Women, they have a significant increase in stress reactivity only after they read the negative news. And they remember 13% more, this is a lot, of only the negative news 48 hours later. So it really, really has an impact. So when I'm stressed, I don't read the news. I'm not joking. When I'm not stressed and I'm zen, I'm coming back from a vacation, bring it. But when it's like this, I'm not, I'm not going there at all. Okay? Ah, the self-help book. It's a huge market. It's difficult for the people to make the difference between the scientifically valid and the non-scientifically valid. And I've been, I'm in mental health uh, you know, domain, and we've been asking ourselves, why is it that people buy so many books? We know nothing about self-help books. The only thing we know is that if you bought a self-help book this year, there's a 92% chance you're going to buy another one next year. Now, the thing is that if the first one had worked, you would not have to buy another one. Got it? So we think that because of the stigma of mental health disorder, it's a self-diagnosis method that people use to try to find answers because they don't want to talk about it, or treatment. So I said, if it works, there should be less stress, right? It's worse. So what I did, I put an ad in the newspaper, and I recruited consumers of self-help books, real consumers, okay, and non-consumers. I exposed them to stress, and I measured their depression 
level to see whether it's self-diagnosis. And one of my colleagues said, no, you know, these people who are consumers of self-help books, they're neurotic people. I said, well, this is a judgment. Eh? This is a value judgment, but I'm going to measure personality to check it out. Here's the results. Consumers are much more reactive to stress, as you can see here. So the stressor is the, whoops, sorry. The stressor is the, 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 the TSST here. So they are significantly more reactive to stress and they are more depressed. So I think it's a self-diagnosis treatment approach. People are looking for answers. We were talking about this yesterday at, the, at dinner and at the focus group. People are hungry for information and they are hungry for a safe place to get this information. That's the problem. Where do I go? What is the safe place and what is the whatever thing that you have? No difference in personality. No, they're not neurotic. Called my friend said, no, they're not neurotic. But yes, they are suffering. Time perspective. Well, some people, as you know, live in the past. Some people live in the future. And some people live in the now. And everyone says, you should live in the now. Nah, I'm not sure about that. Why? Because there's a scientist called Zimbardo who did a lot of work on that. If you want to read a good book, a Zimbardo book on the Amazon is a good book. Because they are different. There are six types of personalities in there. You have people who live in the past, but they are always in the past negative. You know, my life was so difficult. You know, when I was poor, my parents. And you have other people who are in the past positive. Much better in my time. Life was much better in my time. I would go back any time. It's very different. Both is past, but one is positive. The other one is negative. In the now, you have people who live in the now happy. I'm fine with this. But you have people who live in the now totally fatalist. No, everything is not good. No, no, it's always not good. No, no, that is not better. And in the future, you have people who live in the future negative. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in the future. But you have these highly optimistic pe people. Everything will work out. So what we have done, we brought a lot of people in the lab, used a long, long uh, Zimbardo questionnaire to figure out where they stand. And I wanted to say, who is the more reactive to stress? And who is the most anxious? Who are these people? I mean, how can we find them? And what we found is that in terms of reactivity to stress is those living in the past negative and the present fatalists who are significantly more reactive to stress. And those living in the future negative are the anxious one. I don't care. All three of them are ruminators. And you know now the price of sitting in your living room and ruminating on things. You're sending the information to the brain that it's a stressor. Poof, it produces stress hormones. And this is what we don't want to do. So let's work with this information. Let me share a personal story. And this is what Josh learned. It's a friend of mine who convinced me to give this conference four or five years ago. In 2009, I was giving a conference to the public. And at the end of the conference, a woman comes to see me. And she's talking about depression a lot. I think it, she's depressed. And while I'm talking to her, I realize it's not her, it's her husband. And I tell her, I said, well, that must be very stressful for you. She says, yeah, but it's even worse for the children. Because, you know, my young son was always very cheerful, now is very sad. And my 14-year-old daughter doesn't want to introduce her new boyfriend to the family because she doesn't want him to see her father like this. And she left she said the one last sentence before leaving the room. She said, if my husband had been paralyzed in a wheelchair, everyone around us would understand our ordeal and my daughter would have no problem introducing her father to her new boyfriend. But because my husband is suffering from a severe mental health disorder, the stress of the stigma will kill us before the disorder itself. And she left. And I stood there for about 10 minutes and I said, well, let's do this study. 
So I did a study in 2010, I think. I decided to do a study called Silent Victims, where I measured salivary stress hormones, it's cortisol, in all family members, mom, dad, children, of three groups of people. The first, these families in which one parent has a clinical depression. So what I'm saying here is that the children are exposed to two stressors, the stress of the disease and the stress of the stigma. I needed a control group. It was a cancer group. But yesterday I learned that cancer can be much more stigmatized than I thought. Okay? So children who live with a father or a, a mother with cancer, we did not use real stigmatized or that we know of stigmatized cancer like lung cancer, for example. And we had a control group. So we had, uh, it, but the thing is, I started this in September 9, 2009. In September 2011, my husband is diagnosed with a major depression, was sick for two years, very, very sick. And I said, well, it's, it's interesting that I started a year and a half ago a study on, on depression. Huh? 2012, I am diagnosed with breast cancer. I remember sitting in my kitchen and said, life can be cruel. Because I'm doing a study where children are exposed to one or the other, but my two children have both, okay? And no, I not, did not test my children. I did not want to do this. I said, I'm not going to test these children. They have enough on their plate. But just to use this information to let you know, I said, okay, I'm in trouble here. What can I know? Can I do? It's an absolute stressor, the cancer. I cannot control this. Fine but I'm going to control my relative stressor so I can decrease my stress bucket. I see stress as a stress bucket. I'm going to put it down as much as I can so when I have all these things coming from my absolute stressor, I'm going to have space. So I just want to come here and share to you what a stress scientist does when the stress scientist is in this situation. But before, I want to share with you what a stress scientist has learned. And we were talking about that yesterday. What a journey. Huh? The first thing that I learned the stress of our test. Remember the stress of our test, the study I had done many years later? I had, I think, four biopsy, And they gave me an appointment to receive the results, so having my diagnosis. So I go there with my husband, and I'm sitting in the waiting room. There are three women like me waiting for the same thing. We're all sitting there. The doctor is late. Okay, I saw him taking a coffee at the cafeteria. It's fine. He has to take a coffee. We're sitting there. I can sense the stress of these women because I've been doing this for years. There's a woman there that is eating so much of her nails that she's bleeding. And the only thing I have on my mind, the only thing is the following. If I wanted in my lab to expose people to this situation, I would never go through ethics. I, this project would never be accepted. The way we were stressing people in this room was not ethical for me. I could not do this in my lab, I can tell you. And that's the only idea that I had. And this is when, after that, I started to go and see my colleagues, say, come on, guys, we have to find a way to do something else, whatever it is, and this is what we are waiting. So that was the first thing. The second thing, the news, the media, and the people. So I learned that my cancer was because I, hate, I had too much cranberry juice, too many negative emotions. Everyone was going to tell me what they thought about stress. We have to write a book about what to say and what not to say about stress. Altogether, we have to write a book because it's crazy. Okay? The stress of doctors' debate. Everyone, you know, giving their point of view. Okay, can you just come up with a consensus, everyone? So we know where we're going. And the self-help books, there were a thousand books. How can I find my ways in there? And I think that the advocate, when you read good books... You should put it on the whatever database so that people can share. They are so hungry for good information. 
So what a stress scientist has done to control the stress response, the first thing, I said, okay, I can only control my relative stressor, fine. And my most important uh, stressor now is sense of low control. I'm going to increase the control. I'm in Canada. So everything is free doesn't mean you have services. Eh? Hmm? So I had, the, I, you know, I was four biopsy. I said, that. so I decided to take money and go private. This is the way I decided to do it, to take control, to have the feeling. I can never have control over the damn thing, but I can have the feeling I have control over the situation. And I decided to be a partner with the doctor exactly like you're doing now. And then I decided to deconstruct and reconstruct my stressor. This is a way to decrease a stress response very easily. You have to know exactly why you are stressed out. So what I did, and I, now I created programs for this, I put all the situation, this relative stressor that were stressing me, and I deconstructed them. For example, conflict with my husband. Why was it stressful? Was it novel? Was it unpredictable? No, but it was threatening to my ego, and I didn't have the feeling I had control over the situation. I put an X where it is. Then... The morning traffic, I hate morning traffic, so it's unpredictable and I don't have control, tick, 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 tick. Waiting for my biopsy results, well, all three of them was very stressful for me. And the project deadline, because I was still working, was no sense of control. The first thing I learned when I did that, I'm much more sensitive to sense of control. And each one of you here, you're more sensitive to one or the other. Some can be unpredictability, some can be control. Once you know this, you can organize your stress bucket. Eh? If you're very sensitive to unpredictability, well, I try to control the things you can. You know, For example, I have a job with a lot of deadline, but I'm not going to wait last minute, for example. Then, once you have deconstructed the stressor, you will reconstruct it. The conflict with my spouse was stressful because it was threatening to my ego. What can I, or I didn't have feeling I have control over the situation. What can I do to increase sense of control? I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. What can I do to decrease threat to the ego? And you do this for each one of them. This is what I want you to understand. 95% people, 95% of people will not put into action whatever they find to decrease the stress response. But the mere fact of having a plan B, the next time you have a stressor, you bring to your consciousness the plan B you had, sends the message to your brain that you have control, and the brain, that's all it needs to, paf, stop a stress response. Simple as that. Okay? Never go in front of a stressor without a plan B. It's the same as going to chase a mammoth without a spear. Okay? This worked very well, and after that, I tested it with many, many populations. So I created the web e-learning program so that people can learn, can learn how to deconstruct and reconstruct stressors. It's called Stress Inc. It's now in English. And you have the address there. You can access that. And it takes a, an hour and a half to deconstruct and reconstruct your stressor. You're going to watch videos teaching you how to do this. And this is going to follow you saying, okay, did you find a plan B? Did it work? It did not work. You have to find a plan C. Come on, come on. I want you to have a plan because don't go chase a mammoth without a plan. It doesn't work. And it's going to be on your case forever. It takes an hour and a half to do it, but you can stop when you want. It costs $12 Canadian dollars. So it's $6 for you. <laughs> I want you to know that the totality of the money goes back in the lab budget to do research on stress. So we do social financing. So this is something that can be helpful for you or anyone else in your family as well, the caregivers, etc. It's important. That's the first thing. So I learned this, put it back in the lab. The second thing, social support. The best way to decrease the stress response is to have social support. We don't know what. Why? But it works. So what you're doing here, half of the job is done. Okay, so I started a super group for me. I could not get out of the house. So a group email with everyone I know, and I was giving them some news. And I was looking for one thing. It's called virtual empathy. 
When my daughter goes on Instagram and she puts a new picture, I love it. It tells me that she doesn't feel good. Why? Because when she puts a new picture, what does she have? Oh, you look so good, babe. Oh, no, you. Oh, no, you. You, oh, you look good. Oh, no, you look. And that's exactly what she needs. So I really wanted this virtual empathy. So I said, okay, give it to me. This is what I need because I cannot go out and meet with you. So this is what I got. I worked on meditation. I'm such a bad meditator. I'm way too speedy. Hmm? But I really did work on it. Why? Because I wanted to decrease the mind wondering always this, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, okay? And practice the present time positive processing. My time perspective was in the future, in the future. And I said, no, you're coming back because I know exactly what the price is. You're coming back. That was very helpful. For me, it was more helpful with music. Don't ask me why. But for me, at least it worked. A couple of years before I had shown, and this is why I was interested in the dog around, I, I, a friend of mine called me and says, I'm blind, which I knew, and I have an assistance dog, and I think the dog would be very useful for autistic children who are nonverbal to help them. But since they're nonverbal, we won't know if the dog is having a good effect, so should we measure stress hormones? I said, it's a very good idea. And we measure the stress hormones in 52 families who have an autistic children. And we measure the stress hormones before introducing the dog in the family. Four weeks that the dog was there. And two weeks after that, they took out the dog because that was a research project. And Robert died in the middle of the, the testing. So by respect for him, I said, no, 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 no. We have to finish his idea. So I found the data, analyzed the data. I never saw such a decrease in stress hormone in my life, never. So before the, 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 we put the dog in, the stress hormones were here. They were here when we, put back the dog, uh, when we put the dog in the family, and it came back up when we took out the dog. So Sonia being Sonia, I went to see the president. I said, no, that's not very nice. He wanted to know what happened, and you took out the dog, so he gave back the dog, and now they're giving dogs. So I'm there. My two children are totally certain I'm going to die. I tell them I'm not going to die. Yes, you're going to die, because you know cancer is a death sentence most of the time. So I said, I have to take out this in their mind. This is, the, this is their mammoth. This is their mammoth. I'm gonna, I need another thing to put in their mind. So I went out there and I bought Bob Marley. This is Bob Marley. <laughs> and he did exactly what he was supposed to do. You put this little thing on the table. Oh, mom. And then all the attention was on. This was the relevant information. The re and it worked perfectly well. Well, I'm stuck with Bob Marley now, which is fine. But I did exactly this based on this study. Then I realized that my body, I knew this actually, I knew that my best friend was my body. Don't look for people outside of you promising you universal method to deal with stress. You will never have a universal method to deal with stress and it's perfectly fine. So what works for you doesn't work for you and it's perfect. And you know what? What works for you this year won't work next year. Why? I don't know and I don't care. You're not the same person you were when you were 16, right? Why is it that we all look for a universal method that will work forever? It doesn't. We are changing what we need changes. The second thing I want to tell you is follow your intuition. Stop looking outside of you. Your body has everything it needs to stop a stress response. Think about it. If it didn't, we would be dead. We would never have survived to the mammoth. But sometimes we spend so much energy looking outside we don't even realize what we have inside. There are three ways to decrease a stress response so fast you have no idea, and, it's very, very, and it uses the body. The first one is the belly breathing, but now I'm going to teach you in two seconds the belly breathing Sonia class because sometimes people pass out because they do it all weird. <laughs> don't want this to... And gentlemen, don't do 12 in a row. The men always do a lot. No, no, no. 
three. That's fine. So the way we do belly breathing, each time you put air in your body and there's no fancy way, in any way, the, the eyes, the ear, the mouth, whatever. When air comes in, the belly has to come out at the same time, like a balloon. Pwit, 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 pwit. And when the belly comes out, put it out. Girls, stop doing, no, 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 no. Put the belly out. Why? Because under your thoracic cage, you have a muscle, the pink thing, called the diaphragm. The biggest belly you do, this thing extend, and at a certain level of extension, paf, you activate the parasympathetic system that stops the stress response right there. That's it. The belly breathing works, works very well with children and adults, but not at all with teenagers. I tried in 500 teenagers. I said, I'm going to save them. <laughs> they all looked at me saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do belly breathing. No, 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 it's, no I don't want to do this. So I said, well, I'm going to find ways that you do belly breathing without even noticing it. I found three ways that I'm going to share with you so you can put this in your toolbox if you want. The, the teenagers now do out two out of three, but I'm going to give you all three, so you choose. The first way to do belly breathing without noticing it, sing. When we sing, we do diaphragmatic breathing. It decreases by 32% stress hormones. This is good, okay? Now they do choirs in school. I win, okay? The second way, teenagers don't like this, but I'm going to share it with you. Pray, but not God, I want a car, bye. No, 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 no. It has to be long. This is why rosaries were long in the, the old time. Why? Because when you pray long enough, you have a tendency to do belly breathing. And this is why yoga works because of the mantra. If there is no mantra, it doesn't work. The third way to do belly breathing without noticing it, listen to music. But not 250 beats minute. Uh-uh. You know, our teenagers, when they go in raves in the weekend, you know, like these disco things, and we pick them up at the emergency room because they passed out. There are two reasons to this. First, they took drugs. They didn't have to. But second, a rave lasts for 13 hours, and the music in a rave plays at between 150 to 250 beats a minute. That's fast. Now, the brain has this weird tendency to synchronize the breathing to the beat it hears. And this is why, you know, in African tribes, when the sorcerer wants to pass out, they start the tam-tam not too fast, so it, it's synchronized. And then they go a bit faster, more blood to the brain, and bye-bye the sorcerer. Now, if you are in a rave at 150 beat minutes, it's bye-bye the same thing. But this rule applies if you listen to music that is slow, not 150 beat minutes. For example, classical music. Smooth jazz, our love songs, you know. And even if you do not want, I've been trying to control this for a year, it doesn't work. The brain will synchronize the, the breathing on this and you will do belly breathing without even noticing it. It's an amazing thing. The second method to use, it's the most efficient. Decreases depression at the same time because induces neurogenesis. And this is something that people who are sick don't do a lot because they think they cannot do it, and I don't believe that. Here it is. Lose the mobilized energy. We have been telling you to move for many years and say, oh, physical exercise, it's always the same thing. Uh -uh. I'm not saying to do physical exercise. I'm telling you, lose the mobilized energy. Because if you don't lose it, it's going to go here and on those you love. In the mammoth time, they were losing the demobilized energy, right? They were killing the beasts or running as fast as they could if they could. 
Now, it's quite difficult to run in a car when you're stuck in traffic. The feeling you have, it's mobilized energy that is not gone. Then lose it. I once had the very bad idea to tell in a public conference to whom my neighbor was participating that me, it's only when I'm stressed out that I'm going to go and bike as much as I can. Now, each time I come back home biking, she's waiting for me. Are you okay? <laughs> so I moved. <laughs> but not, not because of the neighbor. I love my neighbor. But I had to put my children in a new school at seven and nine years of age. I knew this was a stressor. So for the first month, we live at 1.8 kilometers from the school. So for the first month, this is why the neighbors don't talk to me. They say she's weird. For the first month, systematically, I went walking to the school after the school day. And I told my children, give me your, the, your, your bag and you run home. Because I knew they had mobilized energy and I want them to lose it. They didn't say a word. They did it. And after a month, my daughter said, okay, mom, there's no more mammoth. I said, okay, I'm back to the lab. Ciao. Okay. Now. I know that when we are sick, we have the feeling we cannot move. And I'm not telling you to play tennis. But when I was very sick, I said, no, no, no. I'm going to walk this dog, even if I have to walk like this. But just the light and just the movement and just the fresh air will do much better for my neurogenesis and everything than anything I can do. And I was convinced of this. And there are so much scientific data out there that you should be convinced of that as well. Sometimes I could not get out. And I use something that my new colleagues in the, uh, the US are using to have people move when it's more difficult to move. Here it is. I'm going to share this with you. By the law of Darwin, of evolution, anything that has no more purpose should be eliminated, right? Now, there's a question for you. Why is it that we still have music? What do you think that the you know, mammoth hunter were doing at night around the fire after the, the hunt? They were dancing at the sound of music. And what were they doing while they were dancing? They were losing the mobilized energy. You have no idea how many times my children came back from school stressed out, and I said, oh, yeah, put Britney Spears. And I said, we dance. And then my children would say, oh, you're so cool, mom. I said, no, I'm Machiavellic, but it's fine. Okay. <laughs> Let me give you one trick that I did a lot. You create. You find the five best disco dance song ever created for you. Three minutes per song, by five, it's 15 minutes. Then you're going to go buy the, the headphones that doesn't make any noise. Then you're going to put everyone outside of your room. You're going to lock the door, and you're going to put this on shuffle, and you're going to dance. And don't tell me it doesn't work until you do it. It does work. Don't do this every Tuesday and Thursday at 8. Uh -uh. You do it when you're stressed out. You know, when it does this and you say, OK, I need, I need to breathe, try it. And let me know if it works. And I'm going to give you the last one. While you're dancing like this in your room, go in front of the mirror and look at you. Hmm? You're not going to look like this. No, you're going to be like. Why? Because the third way to decrease stress hormones is to laugh. The same brain regions that make you stress makes you laugh. Think about it. I'm sure it happened to you. You come back home very stressed out. You, go, you give a very bad joke and you cannot stop laughing. I'm sure it's a short circuit or something like that. Each time you laugh, paf, you stop the stress response. You have everything you need in there to be able to deal with the stress response. That's exactly what I have done. Don't, you, I have, that's all I have, but I have a lot because I know it works. Just before, I'm going to take my minute and a half to give you, in the meantime, the study ended. Remember my study, depression, cancer, etc.? 
The study ended and I analyzed the result. I can tell you, I'm a scientist. I'm alone in my living room analyzing the results of the children. I have two children who had a father with depression and a mother with cancer. I'm like, oh God, I don't want to see the results of this one. Okay. And I analyzed the results. So this is the result in terms of the stress. Uh, so the fa- we, uh, it was so difficult to get this. It took us four years to recruit 87 families because we asked a lot from there and they're they already quite sick in there. So it was very difficult. We measured stress hormones, depression, anxiety, self-esteem, quality of life in all of these, in all of the parents and the children, everyone, basically. even the dog. No, joking. This is the stress hormones level in the parents. The only group that is different is the depression. But there's no difference in those, the parent who is sick in terms of the stress hormones. That's good news. The spouse, look at that. No difference at all. All the lines are on top of each other. Okay? And the children... No difference. And I, I try to find a difference to make sure there's no difference. I'll come back to that. In terms of depression, for sure the depressed parent is higher. Cancer pa- parents, a bit high, but not significantly different from the, nor- the controls. And the spouse, no difference as well. Children, no difference. They are resilient. Adaptation of the species. Anxiety. The depressed parent has a lot of anxiety. We knew this, but nothing else on the other groups, either, even the spouse or the cancer uh, patient. Children, nada. Self-esteem is uh, something that is quite often related to stress hormones. Parents with depression, low self-esteem, we knew. No other difference in the others. Nada in the children. The only thing I found in the children was with the children of cancer parents on the impact of quality of life. We had a questionnaire on the impact of the disorder of the parent on quality of life. It was a bit higher in the children of cancer parents. Let me give you a couple of ideas of the question we were asking. Because of my mother-father illness, my ability at school is impaired. Because of my mother-father illness, my social leisure activities with other people are impaired. So I, I can do less because they really want to protect us. As sometimes I would say to my daughter, Leave this house. Go walk the dog. I'm fine because they're, they, they really want to overprotect us, which is not something we see uh, with depression for other reasons. And there was a significant correlation between their stress hormone levels and, and this impact that they had. So we have to help them and saying that they can do stuff by their own without trying to be there to help us. So I didn't find anything, but it might be because of the people I tested. It's possible, and I'm going to pursue my study, that the parents who participated in my study were the resilient ones. They had to take their car, like you guys here. Park, pay the parking, come here. So they were already the resilient ones. So whatever they did to to be the resilient ones had a positive effect on their children. I'm not sure that if I had obliged all the parents to participate, I would have that. That's made me think of you because I spent the day with some people of your group yesterday Perhaps there are differences in the personality between patients advocates, those people who take their car, come here, sit in a scientific meeting on a Sunday. I think about that, because they want to have all the information for their care. So they're gaining control over the situation compared to those sitting at home and not being able to do this. I think that this is this is one of the key that we really have to study in the future in order to be able to understand this. The last thing and then I'm done. This is what I do for the public. Everything that we learned in my lab, we put in this website. It's uh, the Center for Studies on Human Stress. You have the address on top, humanstress.ca. It is in English. Everything that I learned by me or anyone else in my colleagues, 
and it's there for the public, so you understand when it's written. Okay? So you can go there, and if you go through the different sections, you will find many, many, many things. Okay? If you go on the section stress and stress and you, it's all free. You will find many things. You can also download our free Mammoth magazines, nothing else. Huh? Uh, many, many issues on many, many topics. Doctors give this now to patients who are stressed out. So, for example, stress in children and uh, parents, is it the same? Stress at work, anxiety, we have many, many issues. I wrote a book uh, in French first, and it was translated, uh, well-stressed. Uh, I, I think it's available on Amazon or something like that. It's everything I know about stress written for the public so that those who pay for these research can get the return on investment. So I thank you for your attention, and I wish you a very good mammoth hunt for 2019. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.